Well, good morning, and a special good morning to you at in KLT. Uh, even though I can't see you, I hope you can see me. There can be little doubt that the denigration and disintegration of God's wonderful gift of marriage is one of the greatest tragedies of the fallen world. It began in the Garden of Eden when the joy at the end of Genesis 2, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, so very quickly turns to recrimination in Genesis 3. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It's been played out all through history, of course, whenever the pomp and ceremony and promise of a wedding day dissolves into stress, strain, abuse and abandonment. But undoubtedly, it has accelerated in our time. The Family Law Act of Australia in 1975 opened the door to an avalanche of divorce proceedings so that I dare say that there is no one in this room who has not been touched in one way or another by divorce. It might be your own divorce. It might be the divorce of your parents. It might be your friends. And only recently I've sat down and cried with a friend who is watching it play out in the lives of his children. And it is no less tragic because it has become so very common. Divorce is always tragic and it is always painful. It is one of the most harrowing features of life in today's world. It is never good. In some circumstances, it may be unavoidable, perhaps in extreme circumstances, even necessary, but it is never good. The pain is testimony to that. And because it is real and painful and so very close to us, we cannot laugh about it. And we cannot make light of it. We can't play games with it. We must not use it to score points or as an instrument of control or to classify people into those we will love and serve on the one hand and those we will not on the other. Divorce is too serious a subject to be used for any other end. And that's what we're going to see in a moment when we return to Matthew's account of Jesus' life there were some who callously sought to use this subject for their own ends. And Jesus wonderfully, in his response, will teach us something about what matters most. Two great goods we need to keep in mind as we walk together in a world like this one. They can change your view on marriage when you grasp them. But first, if you're visiting us this morning during this open week, let me explain that we've been working our way through Matthew's Gospel on Fridays, with lots of interruptions, for several years now. We will get to the end, hopefully sometime before I retire. Um, and this morning we arrive at Matthew 19. So you'll be glad to know that I didn't choose this sermon exactly for an open day. You know, it wasn't chosen with you in mind specifically. But this is where we're up to, and this is what God would say to us all this morning. But before we turn to uh, Matthew's Gospel again, let's pray that God will help us to see what he wants us to see, to learn what he wants us to learn, and to live as he wants us to live, in the light of his love and in the power of his spirit. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, 
as we touch upon subjects that are very personal and very close to us. We pray that you might enable each one of us to hear your voice, to understand your word, to rejoice in the goodness of it. And Father, would you please take from us every distraction and every device of the evil one that would snatch your word away from us. Please, Father, let your word teach and correct and rebuke and train us in righteousness for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 19 and verse 1. When Jesus finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea across the Jordan. A great crowd followed him, and he healed them there. And some Pharisees came to him, testing him, and said, Is it lawful for a person to divorce his wife for any reason? And he answered, Have you not read that the Creator from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and will be joined to his wife, and the two will be one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God joined, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command, Give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Moses, with a view to your hard-heartedness, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you that whoever divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, and marries another commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if this is the matter of a man and a woman, is it better not to marry? He said to them, not everyone can bear this word, but those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who were born so from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs because of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Well, the passage certainly reads straightforwardly enough. It's not difficult to understand, really. And yet it's a passage that has proven to be controversial, not least for three reasons. First, because the early church historian Eusebius alleged that back in the first half of the third century, a Christian scholar named Origen heard these words, particularly the last few words about eunuchs, took them very literally and seriously and castrated himself. Now, whether he actually did that or not is a matter of debate today, but the story that he did has made this passage controversial for some. Second, some people have made it a focus of attention to establish what are and what are not the appropriate grounds for a Christian to divorce their partner or spouse. They've looked to Jesus' words to provide the answers to our questions about divorce, hoping to construct a list of what is lawful and what is not. Some have ended up with a very short list, one ground only, really, when your partner has been sexually immoral and committed adultery. Others have seen in Jesus' words an, an opening of the door which would provide eventually a long list of appropriate grounds. Sexual immorality was just the first, but still others point out that this very way of thinking, seeking to construct a list of lawful grounds for divorce, 
is far too close to what the Pharisees were themselves doing in this incident for us to be comfortable with it. So the passage is controversial for that reason. And third, just at the moment, people have come to this passage in the course of the raging debates about gender and about same-sex marriage. After all, Jesus here affirms the creation of human beings as male and female. And his talk about marriage is talk about a relationship established between a man and a woman. If this is human nature as Jesus understood it, and this is marriage as Jesus affirmed it, ought we not to resist the headlong rush into 52 or more genders, thank you Mark Zuckerberg, or same-sex marriage? God made us male and female. God intended marriage to be something between a man and a woman. And ignoring this will inevitably lead to confusion and pain and hurt. So once again, the passage is controversial, but this time for a reason that would never have been controversial uh, when these words were first spoken. Nevertheless, for all the controversy, it's not at all difficult to see what is going on here. While these verses certainly have something to say about divorce and more specifically about marriage, and while they do speak about how we were created in the first place and also about the decision some have made to remain single for the sake of the kingdom, there's something else going on here. And the two great clues are found in verses 3 and 7. In verse 3, we are told that some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They weren't asking a genuine question. They didn't want information. They were trying to trap him, to catch him in his words and to get him offside with the people. They'd tried this before in chapter 16, you might remember. The devil himself had tested Jesus in chapter 4. The question that day from the Pharisees was not an honest inquiry. They did not really care about what they were asking. Divorce was just a nice debating point, a device for ensnaring Jesus. They were playing games with the question of divorce. In verse 7, you see it again, as the Pharisees play with the scriptures in this continuing attempt to trap Jesus. So they appeal to Moses, to Deuteronomy 24, in fact, but they turn it into a command. Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? In their desperation, they turned to a text about human sinfulness, about trying to limit and constrain the hurt and pain caused by the hard-heartedness of the people to whom these words were first addressed. They turned it into a law about divorce. The truth is that these Pharisees weren't interested in any answer Jesus might give them that day, except insofar as it might get him into trouble. They just wanted him boxed into a corner, trapped into saying something that would offend some of the crowd. Their questions were flippant and careless and cruel, precisely because divorce, when it happens, is so devastating and painful. But at every point, Jesus had their measure. Jesus did not ignore the issue that they so callously misused in their attempt to trap him, but he took them behind the question to the first of the two great goods this passage holds out for us. 
Well, their question was, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? It was a yes or no question, really. It was a nicely laid trap. See, there was a raging debate among the Pharisees on the subject, Rabbi, Rabbi Shammai arguing that there were strictly limited grounds for divorce and Rabbi Hillel arguing for a more lax understanding. It was a debate about just what was meant by the word some indecency in Deuteronomy 24. Did it have a definite and restricted meaning or a more expansive one? Did it narrow the discussion to sexual misbehaviour or did it open it up to all sorts of other misbehaviour? Famously, even burning your husband's dinner. Which way would Jesus go? Would he side with Shammai or with Hillel? Either way, he was bound to get somebody off the side. But Jesus didn't fall for the trap. He didn't actually answer their question. Instead, he went behind it to the person and purposes of God. You see, there was something more important more basic, that recasts the whole discussion and the Pharisees were overlooking it. In verse 4, Jesus spoke of he who created them, the creator. And in that same verse, and again in verse 8, he spoke of what was true from the beginning. Ultimately, who God created us to be and what God intended marriage to be from the beginning changes the way you look at the whole subject. The creator made us male and female from the beginning. The creator gave us marriage as something so radical and intimate, a bond not just of the will, but of two people becoming one flesh, that the search for grounds for divorce is misguided from the beginning. We sometimes talk about marriage as a covenant, and there's a great deal of truth in that. In marriage, promises are made. Openly, publicly, before witnesses, solemn promises, serious promises. They are an essential part of marriage. And the breach of those promises, the sense of betrayal, when I should have been able to trust your word, is a great cause of pain when divorce happens. But Jesus is saying here that marriage is more than a covenant. God has joined them together. Not just a matter of decision and will, it's a matter of being joined together by God. And you must not separate what God has joined together. The reason why divorce is not a trivial matter, certainly not simply a debating point as the Pharisees were treating it here, is because something this significant is happening when a man and woman marry God has joined them together. And that changes the way you look at marriage from the start. A friend of mine tells the story of counselling a woman whose life was entirely unravelled. And he asked her, when did it all start? What was the first point that it all started to unravel? And she surprised him by saying it was on my wedding day. She remembers uh, on that day, walking down the aisle with, on her father's arm, she remembered telling herself, well, if it doesn't work out, I can just divorce him. And almost inevitably, it didn't work out within just a few months, and the downward spiral of her life began. You see, she'd entered marriage looking for the escape hatch, 
leaving open the door. It's why prenuptial arrangements are almost always a death sentence upon a marriage. Here's what we'll do when we break up. That's not the way to enter a marriage. Casting around, looking for grounds on which I can get out of this or could get out of this and how we'll divide up the goods when that happens. It forgets that from the beginning the creator made them male and female and he said, the creator said, they will be one flesh. Now I need to stop for a moment and remind you of what I said at the beginning. Sometimes in extreme cases, a divorce might not only be inevitable, it might be necessary. The most obvious case is where there has been some form of domestic abuse. There is nowhere in the Bible, as far as I can see, which suggests the victim of abuse needs to remain in a position where they are in danger. A marriage is meant to be a place of safety, of intimacy and loving care. Where there is violence or manipulation and abuse, this desperate last resort of divorce may be necessary in order to protect the victims. It would be a gross distortion of what Jesus says here if it were used to suggest that a victim should keep putting themselves in harm's way like that. But there is another dimension that adds to the horrific nature of that tragedy. It goes against what God intended from the beginning. It violates the created purpose of God. God's original intention for marriage is the joyful delight in one another, a bond so close and so important that it changes the nature of all our other relationships. No longer am I first and foremost the son of my father or the son of my mother. I'm the husband of my wife. And that bond between us goes to the very heart of humanity as God created it. And that, friends, is why the Pharisees little tactical game is so perverse. The entire way they framed the question was wrong. The starting point is God, the creator, the way he's made us, and his intention for human flourishing and growth and life. That's the first great good that Jesus points us to in this exchange. Understand God's design and God's intention and it changes the way you look at marriage and the way you look at divorce. And Jesus presses that point again when the Pharisees come back at him and try to trap him by misquoting Deuteronomy. Moses didn't command you to divorce. Far from it. It was a concession to the hard-hearted way some men were treating their wives. But from the beginning, from the beginning... It was not so. That was not the creator's intention. Well, understand that and you won't take Jesus' next words as the opening of a door for divorce. You won't be searching for lawful grounds or anything like that. Jesus said, I tell you that whoever divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. It is that serious. There is the tragic, life-shattering case of sexual betrayal which repudiates the exclusive bond that God created 
in this marriage where trust is irretrievable and the, heart, the hurt is unbearable and that may make divorce unavoidable. But otherwise, if you tear apart what God has joined together and try to make another joining, it's nothing short of adultery. That is not what God intended from the beginning. It was a foolish and perverse game that the Pharisees were playing that day. They were playing fast and loose with something very, very serious from Jesus' point of view. You need to understand that we are created. We do not make ourselves. You need to understand the creator's intention. He brings a man and a woman together in marriage, not just in a union of wills, but as one flesh. Well, the reaction of the disciples underscores how deeply challenging Jesus' words were and are. If marriage is like that, if that's what God intended from the beginning, if there's no inbuilt escape clause, then should we think twice about getting married at all? And that's where we come to the strangest words in the passage. Not everyone can bear this word, but those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who were born so from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs because of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Marriage, as important as it is, part of God's original created intention as it is, is not everything. And it's certainly not the most important thing. Counter to just about everything we're being told, insistently, urgently, brazenly, expressing yourself sexually is not what defines you. It's not what makes you human. It's not even what makes you fulfilled and complete as a human being. And sex is good, but it's not the most important thing in the world. You can indeed live without sex. You can indeed thrive without sex. Don't be fooled by the advertising and the media and Hollywood and, and the distorted perspectives being pushed on our children in schools and now being endorsed by our education system. We need a bigger picture of who we are. We need a better picture of who those are who are around us. And we need to help each other escape this demeaning and destructive trap that the devil set for us. But that doesn't mean we should go about enforcing celibacy or decrying marriage. Remember being in a church uh, where none of the guys would look at the women in the congregation. Uh, they avoided conversation, or at least they were very awkward about it. They must keep themselves from marriage for the gospel's sake. And they made pledges to each other to draw them away from anybody that might snare them away from this. It actually took a visiting Australian, not me, to come into the pulpit and tell them they were being stupid. Jesus made clear in answer to his disciples that not everyone is able to decide to live without marriage. Sometimes circumstances will decide that for you. I have friends who are same-sex attracted who live faithfully as godly, celibate, single men, knowing that marriage is not for them. They didn't choose this circumstance. 
but it's the circumstance in which they live. I have other friends who would love to be married, but for a variety of reasons, it's not been possible for them. They didn't choose this circumstance, but it's the circumstance in which they live. And I know others, actually very few, who have decided to remain single for no other reason than the freedom it gives them for gospel work. Jesus said, some are born eunuchs, some are made eunuchs, and some make themselves eunuchs because of the kingdom of heaven. I don't think he was talking about physical castration. If Origen did do what Eusebius said he did, I think he was entirely mistaken. But the point Jesus was making is there is another good that transcends marriage. And some people will be able to forego marriage for its sake. The first good Jesus pointed to in this passage is the creator's intention. Don't let your thinking about marriage be distorted in a way that leads you to downplay what God has done when he brings a man and a woman together in this way. We ought not to seek to separate what God has joined together. Marriage is that important. The second good is the kingdom of heaven. This world is passing away and marriage is part of this world. It is for a time. Just as it is possible to undervalue marriage, as the Pharisees did with their questions, it's possible to overvalue marriage. And Jesus' final words encourage those who are able to do without it for the sake of the kingdom of heaven to take hold of that opportunity. Yes, marriage is important, but it's not that important. So in the end, Jesus' words about divorce end up pushing us to think beyond divorce to those two great realities. The intention of God from the beginning and the purpose of God realised at the end. The joy God intended for men and women, which we have tragically distorted and abused so often, and the even greater joy that lies ahead when all God's promises find their fulfilment. And so strangely, even the malevolence of the Pharisees ends up blessing us. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the great gift of marriage. We thank you too for the great gift of being able to be single for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. We pray that you might help us to ponder these things that we have been told from Jesus and live as your people in this world faithfully and to your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.